Well, good morning once more. Please turn with me in your copy of the scripture to Daniel chapter 7. We've arrived at the second half of the book of Daniel, and while what we've seen thus far is ordinary narrative, the view from the ground, you might say, from here on out, things change rather dramatically. Um, But first, I do want to address a matter that I've held off discussing, and that is, you might recall that after the introductory chapter to the book of Daniel, that chapters 2 through 7 are written in Aramaic, while the rest of the book is written in Hebrew. Why on earth is that? Chapter 7, then, seems to belong thematically with its visions and dreams to the second half of the book, but linguistically, because of the language within, uh, with which it is written, belongs to the first half of the book. And it seems, then, that chapter 7 functions as a bridge a bridge between a common-looking, ordinary history that could be seen by anyone written in the common language of the day, a bridge between that and the supernatural, invisible history known only to the people of God through special revelation written in the language of the Jews. Chapter 7 thematically belongs to the second half, linguistically belongs to the first half, serves, I would suggest, as a bridge between the ordinary history revealed in the common language of the day and the supernatural history revealed by special revelation to the people of God in their language. And what we will see is that these two histories are happening simultaneously. Because in chapters 7 through 12, we're not going to move forward to subsequent regimes. We're not going to go past Cyrus, for example. Uh, But what we are going to see is the supernatural backstory to what we've already seen, the history through which we've already walked. And so we begin by going backwards to the first year of King Belshazzar, who was, and this was likely at least 10 years or so before we see him in Daniel chapter 5, which was his last year. And here is what we read, that in the first year, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head, these night visions, As he lay in bed, and then he wrote them down, he gave an account of them, and he told the sum of the matter. In other other words, he summarized them. He distilled the, the, the dream. And we're going to get a description of four beasts that rise out of the great sea that are stirred up by the winds of heaven. And and these beasts, it's important to note because of a contrast that's gonna come later, they do not come up randomly. They are stirred up by heaven's wind. And they come out of the sea. They do not come out of heaven. They do not come out of the sky. He says this. He says, And four great beasts, excuse me, Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then I looked, its wings were plucked off. Then it was lifted up from the ground, made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side, had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. Then it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. And after this, and looked, I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back, The beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. He sees three different beasts, all that are explicitly described as being like a particular thing. A lion, a bear, a leopard. And all of them are described as either doing certain things, or being commanded certain things, or having certain things even done to them. having certain things done to them. And then set off from these other three, Daniel describes a fourth beast in verse 7. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong, that had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns. Daniel says that this fourth beast was not like the other beasts. It was not like the ones that came before it. And certainly, whatever else that might mean, for example, that it was more powerful than the, you know, the 
four-headed leopard that had been given dominion, we, one thing that sticks out is it is distinguished as not being like a particular kind of animal. It doesn't say that it was like a particular kind of animal. That's why there's only three pictures here. Some of you thought I just couldn't count, right? There, there isn't. It doesn't say this was like this. This is a mistake that people make when they're trying to depict these. These are fairly straightforward. These are word pictures. These are word pictures. This is what Daniel, something like this is what Daniel is trying to get us to think of. This fourth one, when people try to, and there's no, there has been no shortage of efforts to try to put this thing together, people are just guessing. They know what's got some, they're going to see, they know it has some horns and iron teeth, but like the, the rest of everything about it, they have to guess. There's a reason it's not associated with a particular animal. And most of the guesses are, looks like some kind of dinosaur or something. It's just bizarre. Okay? But instead, here's the thing. It's not described as being like any particular animal. It's described only by its attributes and actions. Only by themes related to it. It's great and powerful, devouring nature. But in verse 8, we learn something else. I considered the horns, and so Daniel zooms in on the horns of this thing, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one. A little horn. You think, oh, that's cute. It's a cute little horn. It's not cute. Before which, three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And so now we get this bizarre imagery of horns are plucked up by the roots. That's like tree imagery. And so you have this little horn that emerges, and there's out of the three uh, of the ten horns that were there, they get torn off, they get plucked off of this beast by the little horn that has come up. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man. And a mouth speaking great things. The ESV preserves the literal ambiguity of the Aramaic right here. Great things. But in English, it's a little bit, well, it's, well, it is ambiguous, even in the original language. The context clarifies that the great things being talked about here aren't like good and edifying things. You're given a first read through, you're like, oh man, it's like speaking like real edifying, like amazing good things. No, that's why some of your translations have pompous things or arrogant things. And we're gonna, that's going to get clarified for us. That is, uh, that is not special pleading. You're going to see that that's what happens as the text goes along. This horn is speaking great things, meaning presumptuous kinds of things, pompous kinds of things, arrogant kinds of things. And right there, the scene ends. That's it. And at this point, we are, we are not supposed to be in puzzle-finding, puzzle-working mode. We are supposed to just be shocked. This is supposed to be bizarre. It's like we've had some drug-induced trip to the zoo. We're looking at this. We've seen these bizarre things. We don't know exactly what to make of them. Okay? The dream ends. And then just like dreams do, all of a sudden we are transported, so to speak, to a totally different setting instantly. Totally different setting. I saw this and I was having this dream. Then all of a sudden this was happening. It's exactly what happens in Daniel's vision. Scene two. Scene two. As I looked, so here he is looking again. Thrones were placed, and the ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were open. Oh, this is big time. Big time. Multiple thrones, multiple thrones laid out. A court is pictured as convening, and, and Yahweh, that is the ancient of days, is a a designation for Yahweh, God, takes his seat, presiding, it would seem, over the court, over the council. And notice that there are multiple thrones set out. We have a council setting over which uh, the Ancient of Days provides, but that's in contrast to the people who are said to serve him and stand before him. So whatever it looks like the people serving look like, you have people who are standing before him, you have people who served him, and then you have the folks who are sitting on the thrones around there with him. That's kind of the picture. You ask, well, how can 10,000 and 10,000, the picture here is just an innumerable amount of folks, wouldn't they kind of get away in the, get in the way of the meeting or something? But again, remember, it's a dream. Like It doesn't have to make sense. 
Okay? You don't have to know, like, well, where were they spatially located in this thing? There were thousands and thousands that served him, that were before him, and he sat down in judgment in this divine council, in this courtroom. Okay? What we need to know here is that this Ancient of Days is awesome. This is a breathtaking description. A breathtaking description of someone who is so other and who is so above and is so transcendent and so mighty that quite literally only figurative language has any chance of describing him. Takes his seat. Books are open. Supreme picture of the ancient of days. This incredible picture of those who serve him. And then he's in this council setting where judgment is issued. And we're going to see what that means. We're going to see that teased out in just a second. Now you have to trust me here. We're actually going to skip over the next two verses. We're going to skip over the next two verses to scene three. Skip with me over to scene three down in verse 13. Daniel continues his looking, his seeing within the dream. And in verse 13, we read about the next thing that he sees. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. What do we have here? At least a few things. At least a few things. First, the idea of someone coming on the clouds and about 70 other instances in the Old Testament always depicts Yahweh coming. It is a picture of the divine presence coming on the clouds. It is a theophany. It is a visible appearance of the invisible God. And it would be in a, this would be a bewildering picture to the original audience who could, it would have been far more bewildering to them than it is to us because what the imagery initially seems to communicate is that God is coming before God. What it seems to suggest is that Yahweh is coming before the Ancient of Days, who is Yahweh. What, what exactly is going on here? What exactly is going on here with the cloud rider? We also learned that he was presented. So this isn't a barging in to a courtroom. This isn't a barging in to a throne room. It's not clear that we're still at the court in this, at this point. He was presented. This is language. This was, this, was, this was something that was appropriate. He was introduced. This is language that you would use of a dignitary. He was being presented uh, to a king and introduced. This was appropriate. He was, a, he was formally accepted in, uh, before the Ancient of Days. And then three, unlike the first beast, like a lion, the second beast, like a bear, the third beast, like a leopard, the cloud rider, he is like something, but not an animal. And he doesn't come out of the sea. Daniel says his appearance was like the Son of Man. That is to say, a human being. One in the image of God. One in the image of God. This God, this God-like cloud rider that comes before the Ancient of Days has the appearance of a man. What are we to think of this? Yahweh the man? God the man? It's imagery that is just so, so bizarre. And we read in verse 14 something incredible. To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. We learn here, we'll get further clarify later, this is a king. Because those are the kinds of beings who receive a kingdom. And immediately our minds are cast back to the doxologies and the commentaries we've been hearing throughout the whole book. Darius, he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end, says Darius. Nebuchadnezzar, after his restoration, 
For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. And then we remember the statue-crushing stone from Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2. What does Daniel say as he interprets that stone that ushers in the kingdom of God that will be set up? In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. The picture that emerges in verse 14 is that this cloud-riding son of man plays a central role, a central role in the advent and the victory of the kingdom we've been reading about for six chapters. The precise nature of the role isn't clarified yet. But it is this one who has dominion that is everlasting, that shall never pass away, and a kingdom that is coming that shall not be destroyed. That's all the language we've been hearing so far about the kind of kingdom that God sets up and is setting up. And all of a sudden, this cloud rider is the one, somehow it operates around him. Somehow he is central to this process. That's scene three. And now, I promise you, I would you got to trust me here. Now we're going to go back. Sandwiched in between the incomprehensibly great description of the Ancient of Days and the dazzling Son of Man receiving eternal dominion, we read verse 11. I looked, then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. That's it. The end. It's, it's kind of like you're watching a movie with this seemingly invincible villain and you get distracted to make sure your kids aren't destroying your house more than they already do. And um, you look back at the TV and all of a sudden they're like lying dead on the ground. It's like, oh, okay, I guess, guess it's over. That's the feeling. That's the feeling that this verse provides us because of how it is sandwiched, because of how it is sandwiched in between these things. In the end, at the end of the day, just like Babylon falls in one singularly underwhelming sentence, we read that in the full scope of things, this fourth beast who seems invincible will be relegated to the footnotes of history because of what is going on behind the veil. We learn that the main story here is the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man. And what happens with this beast that seems so terrifying is, again, just like Babylon going to be flicked off the pages of history because of what's happening here. You might think, well, the destruction of this big beast, wouldn't it get a little bit more real estate in Daniel's vision? No. Because to give more real estate would convey that it's... Uh, more important than it actually is, or has more power than it actually does. Now certainly Daniel, like us, is going to be very curious, and we're going to see in the interpretation that he is in fact curious, and that's okay. But the way the vision plays out, and the way Daniel looks and sees, the destruction of a fourth beast is something that isn't even given much fanfare. Because the Son of Man in the Ancient of Days rules. We read in verse 12 that the rest of the beasts there, their dominion gets taken away, but they're allowed to live. Their lives were prolonged for a season and a time, some kind of definite period of time. It is likely a mistake, I would say, to conclude that these visions, these three or four, depending on how you want to split it up, uh, are chronological. This one happens, and then this one happens, and this one happens. It's rather, I saw, I saw, I saw, I saw, I saw, I saw. This is a visionary collage without necessarily telling us um, the precise order of things, the precise order of the visions. And so the vision ends, properly speaking. But strangely, not the dream as a whole. You think that some people say, well, the, the dream ends here. No, it doesn't. Just because it says Daniel's vision interpreted doesn't mean the dream ends. Because within the dream itself, we're going to get an interpreter. We are going to get a dream-embedded, vision-embedded interpreter of the dream. It's bizarre. He says, My spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. 
This is the disposition of the kings that we've read about who've had these bizarre kind of visions. And now Daniel finds himself in the same state of alarm because of what he's seen. This is bizarre, and he's asking the same question that a lot of you are asking. What on earth is going on? What on earth is going on here? And he says, I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. And then we get verse 17. What does the bystander say? You can't walk away from Daniel 7 without saying that we at least know a few things decisively. Okay? Verse 17. These four great beasts are four kings who shall rise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. Forever, forever, and ever. It says that these beasts, these great beasts, these are, these are kings who are going to represent kingdoms. And that's how he's going to understand the fourth beast in particular. But it is the saints of God who are going to possess the kingdom forever the kingdom that is given to the Son of Man just mentioned. And I love Daniel's disposition here. It certainly is like mine. Perhaps it's like yours. He just wants to know more. I desire to know the truth about the fourth beast. Ooh, what about the mysterious fourth beast? Shrouded in mystery, not said to be like any particular animal, but terrifying. He says, I desire to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was, ex was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying with its teeth of iron and cl claws of bronze, which devoured and broken its pieces and stamped what was left with its feet and, and about the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn that came up and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and mouth and spoke great things that seemed greater than its companions. All the, the, the way it is laid out is just like, what about this one thing? Like, I've got to know about this one particular thing. You know, forget all the other kings. What about this one that's coming? He's, he zeroes in on this one. We read something that Daniel has not initially given us. He does not initially give us. He tells us, there's small detail about the claws of bronze. But in verse 21, we read something that's much more insightful about the original vision that he finally coughs up. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over him. This is the little horn that emerged. The little horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. The time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. So there is going to be a giving over. This little horn is going to have some success. Exercise some dominion of his own over the saints. Until the ancient of days says, done. Judgment for the saints. Time for the saints to possess the kingdom that the Son of Man has been given. So this is his, we haven't got to the interpretation yet past the one verse. We've got to Daniel's frantic plea for interpretation and this dream embedded interpreter spills the beans. Gratefully. Thus he said, as for the fourth beast. There shall be a fourth kingdom on earth. Kings stand at the head of kingdoms. Which shall be different from all the kingdoms. And it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. Now that's very interesting. Notice it's going to devour the whole earth. It's going to devour the whole earth doesn't say it's going to devour, in this particular verse, all the saints. But it's going to be something that is consuming. It's not going to be some local manifestation of evil. This is going to be a consuming, devouring. It's going to be ex an expansive kingdom. And then he talks about the horns. 
He says, as for the ten horns, out of this kingdom, ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. And he shall be different from the former ones. And he shall put down three kings. We read that in this expansive, extended kingdom, there will be multiple kings, but there will be a king who arises after them. After them, it says. The little horn from the vision. The horn that comes up after. And what will it do in particular? We read that he shall speak, and here's where we get understanding great things that the little horn spoke as not good things, but blasphemous things. Listen to what it says. He shall speak words against the Most High. He shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law. We learn three things about the little horn. The little horn will utter blasphemy. The little horn will speak against the Most High. Will speak against the Ancient of Days. The little horn will oppose the saints of God. The little horn will oppose God's people, persecuting them. Persecuting them. Making war on them. In addition to whatever else he does to the other kings. And then finally, he will seek to alter things that it is only God's prerogative to alter. He will seek to alter things like the times, and the law that only God has the prerogative to do. That only God has the prerogative to define. And he says, They shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. We're going to come, we're going to come back to that one. So just, again, trust me on that one. We're going to come back to, come back to that. But our interpreter tells us that the saints are given into his hand for a prescribed period of time. It's counterintuitive, isn't it? The saints of God are given by the ancient of days into his hand of, of the persecutor for a particular period of time. However, that's not how it all ends. But the courts, this is the second time, the court sitting in judgment. Court sitting in judgment. So, Again, verse 10, the court sat in judgment. Verse 22, until the ancient of days came and judgment was given for the saints. Verse 26, but the court shall sit in judgment. There are, there are authoritative declarations that come out of this, whatever you make of it precisely, divine courtroom, divine counsel. There are authoritative, redemptive history shaping decrees and actions that come out of this thing. And it says that the court shall sit in judgment and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end, fully, all the way. Time for him to be destroyed, says the Ancient of Days sitting in court. It's been enough. It's been long enough. And then we read, and the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom, and then we hear this language again, His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominion shall serve and obey Him. The saints possess the kingdom because dominion has been given to their king. The saints possess the kingdom because dominion has been given to a king. All people, rulers, nations will bow the knee in obedience. That is the picture. That is how it ends. It doesn't end with the suffering. It doesn't end with the making war. It ends with victory. It ends with the kingdom. And Daniel says, here is the end of the matter. He started, remember he wrote a summary of this. This is the end of his summary. Summary of his dream. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. Now listen, you might think, well, that's because he didn't know what to make of it. But actually, remember, at, the, at verse 15, he says, 
uh, I was anxious, uh, and, and the visions of my head alarmed me. Now, because he didn't have an interpretation, he didn't have an understanding, it gets interpreted, and he's got, uh, he's got a similar disposition. But this time, it's not because he didn't get an interpretation. It's because he did get an interpretation. It's because he did get a ter- uh, He knows that despite knowing the saints of the Most High will inherit the kingdom, that it's going to be very tough sledding for the people of God. And it's not going to stop anytime soon. And that there are rulers coming who, make, who will make life under Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar and Darius look like sitting out at recess by comparison to what they are going to do. And he says, I'm alarmed. My color changed. But he kept the matter in his heart. He didn't forget it. He did not forget this. He took it to heart. And so Daniel's summary of his dream ends with Daniel himself shaken because of its implications. And if we are not similarly compelled, we haven't fully grasped the alarming nature of the vision and the implications. Before we turn to any application, I want to zoom out, however, to see if we can zoom back in, actually. And certainly we must exercise great caution in over-interpreting the details of the text as we seek to work within the framework that uh, we discussed, and that we discussed that a couple of chapters ago, the idea of the interpreting apocalyptic prophecy at the visionary, symbolic, and referential level. Visionary level, what is actually seen. The symbolic level, what is symbolized by what is seen. The referential level, what it actually refers to in history. Great example would be Nebuchadnezzar. The, uh, his statue, the head of the statue was made of gold. Okay, so what he saw was a head of gold. What it represented was this illustrious grandeur, and what it referred to in history was the man Nebuchadnezzar in the Babylonian regime. All three levels. What I'm suggesting here is our interpreter gives us an interpretation down to the symbolic level, um, but not to the referential level, meaning not to the concrete details and people and times and kingdoms. He just the, the inspired interpretation we get here just doesn't provide it. We should heed the words of one theologian. Listen to what he says. This is a fantastic, a fantastic summary of what I just mentioned, being careful. He says, Much energy and attention has been devoted to tracking down the identity of the ten horns and the little horn and to investigating other minutiae of interpretation. It is possible, however, to miss the woods for the trees and fail to see that this chapter was first written to help those who were incapable of dogmatically identifying these symbols. Such anticipations of fulfillment of the details of visionary teaching may be fundamentally mistaken. It would be like looking for exact doctrinal equivalents to the father's kiss, the robe, the ring, and the fatted calf in the parable of the prodigal son. Or for the donkey, the innkeeper, and the coins in the parable of the good Samaritan. This is to fail to grasp the genre of the passage whose details do not have one-to-one equivalents. We are in apocalyptic, visionary literature. You cannot read this like you read just any other genre. And so, I want to exercise caution, but I don't want our caution to cause us to throw up our hands, okay? Somewhere in between certainty and total guessing is wise consideration of the text, and giving plausible, uh, seeking to give plausible insight and draw plausible conclusions and make responsible inferences. What can we then say in light of the whole book of Daniel, in light of Daniel chapter 7, and importantly, in light of the special revelation of the New Testament? We have a fuller scope here than the original audience ever would have had. What can we say? I'm going to try to do this quickly, so... Hold on, to your, hold on to your hats, okay? Write very quickly if you're a note taker. 
It should not have escaped your notice that Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7, in addition to being the bookends of the Aramaic section of the book of Daniel, both have visions in them. Both of the visions involve kingdoms, and in both of them there are four kingdoms. As the bookends of the Aramaic section, both involving four kingdoms, uh, both involving visions, kingdoms, and four kingdoms, it would be an incredible coincidence, particularly given the nature of apocalyptic literature in a singular book, if they weren't related at all. If they were not related at all, it would be a mind-boggling coincidence. And we're going to see some more repetition of things as we go throughout the book, by the way. And in this case, what I would suggest is that Daniel 2 tips us off to the nature of the kingdoms. Um, and I said that uh, cautiously, I thought it very plausible to infer the kingdoms after Nebuchadnezzar as being Persia, Greece, and Rome. So in the statue, the gold, the, the, the gold head was explicitly identified with Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian regime. Um, and then we know that the, st- the stone that struck the feet of the statue that had ended up getting mixed there uh, is the kingdom of God that gets ushered in in the person of Jesus. Well, chronologically, in terms of history, that happened during the Roman period, during the first century. Okay, Mercifully, history doesn't leave a ton of options between those two times for what they even could be. Babylon fell to Persia, which some people try to say is the Medes and Persians, but every single time in the book of Daniel, the Medes and Persians are together. Cyrus was a mixed king. The Medes have been subsumed under Persia anyways. It was the Persian kingdom. Babylon falls to Persia. Persia falls to Greece. We get Alexander the Great. And then you have Rome, and that's it. Then you have the stone. Then you have the Christ. And so... I think understanding the first kingdom here, King as Babylon, has the further advantage of comporting well with the restoration of Nebuchadnezzar, who was bent over eating grass like a beast of the field, but was in fact stood back up and he was given the mind of a man instead of a beast. The second kingdom, picturing a bear with ribs, it pictures something that was already eating, already devouring, and it was told to do more, which is exactly what the Persian kingdom was doing under Cyrus the Great who conquered Babylon. The third kingdom, Greece, represented by a stunningly fast creature, a leopard with movement and vision capabilities in all directions. That's the idea of having four. It wasn't like four heads that just looked straight forward. The idea is it had vision and movement capabilities in all directions and breathtaking speed lines up incredibly well with the astronomically fast advancement of the Greek empire. I mean, what Alexander, especially under Alexander the Great, the speed at which it expanded in every direction and how, how vast it was. In fact, when Rome takes over, that's why you still have, hear phrases like the Greco-Roman world. Rome, Greece fell to Rome, but like Greece, the culture, that stuck around. It was amazing how fast that it spread and how, how much dominion it had. And that's exactly what it says. Now, historically, the fourth dynasty in line is Rome, but I recall that Daniel chapter 7 gives us a bit of a different angle than Daniel chapter 2, which is also very common in apocalyptic imagery. You get a different angle on the same event. You see this a lot in the book of Revelation. Daniel chapter 7 does not identify the fourth beast with a particular animal, but only with certain qualities. Devouring, for example, strong, mighty. And what it suggests, if we're putting, if I'm putting the pieces together correctly, and I'm of course doing so tentatively, that this kingdom parallels the kingdom of God ushered in by Christ and therefore starting right around historically the first century, but it isn't defined by any particular human kingdom. It's not identical to any particular human kingdom, just like it's not described like being any particular animal. It is described by its qualities, its opposing God, its being devouring, its being consuming, and having these horns, and one horn in particular that persecutes the saints. It is the eschatological kingdom of man that opposes the kingdom of God. Typified certainly by, in many ways by the Roman Empire, but not limited to it. Recall, it is at the end of the day, Revelation chapter 18 
Theological Babylon is the last kingdom to fall. Theological Babylon, the old opposer of the people of God and God himself, is the last kingdom to fall. What I am suggesting is that because of how the fourth beast is described, that the fourth beast is equivalent to theological Babylon, that ancient foe of the people of God, in whom was found, Revelation 18.24, the blood of prophets and saints. Because they were made war on. Characterized by the rise and fall of, of many rulers who set themselves up against God and their anointed, but not able to be limited to any particular regime in history. It is a regime that will continue on. And yet... There will arise in this king, a kingdom a king, a ruler, a powerful one, someone in authority after all the others. There will be the last king. Okay? There will be the last king of men that will come after according to the interpretation given <clears throat> the others. And he will utter blasphemies and perform wonders oppose God and presume His authority and who will be destroyed. The little horn that makes war on the saints and opposes God sets himself up as the anti-God or the anti-Christ. The anti-Christ who interestingly himself is the only other thing pictured in the vision as someone who is like a man. Verse 8, the little horn had eyes like the eyes of a man, and it had a mouth that was speaking great things. This is the one, 2 Thessalonians 2, that we heard read as the first scripture reading, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God, and the one who will be accompanied by all power and false signs and wonders. The saints will be given into his hand time, times, and half a time. That, that, that is directly here from verse, uh, uh, the bottom of verse 25. The word time here uh, is different than the time in the, the word for time used in the verse right before it, or the, excuse me, the clause right before it. And shall think to change the time and seasons, that the, excuse me, the time and law, that's more like seasons. The Aramaic word here is a different one. It denotes just kind of a time period. We can't stamp a particular number of days or something. It's like a, a unit of time, a unit of time. That seems to be the idea. We can't extract something specific. But what we can do is we can interpret the symbols in the book of Daniel relative to each other. We can interpret them relative to each other, even if we're not woodenly laying out a timeline. We've already seen one very specific period of time. Nebuchadnezzar's seven periods of time. With the seven serving to symbolically designate, like it will do later in the book as well, a, a, a time that is sufficient for accomplishing a particular purpose. It is a time frame that is sufficient for accomplishing a particular purpose. But if that's what seven designates, and that's what it does in the book of Daniel and elsewhere, this seems to designate the opposite of that. A time in which an intended aim fails to be accomplished. The idea seems to be that you have one period, and then one period of time, and then you have multiple periods of time, and we're expecting four times. That would get us to seven. The, the, the little horn's efforts would come to completion. But it's not. Right when things are ramping up, you don't get four times, you get half a time. Time times half a time. What is that? That's three and a half. That's half of seven. Okay? Now, I'm not trying to correlate that with any particular months or years or times of any of that, but I'm, I'm, I'm telling you that the symbols related to one another suggest that what happens here is right when things appear to be locking down and the, and the dominion of the little horn seems to be increasing, that boom, it gets cut off. It gets cut short. That's the symbolic picture. Time, times, oh, we're really about to get rolling. Done, says the Ancient of Days. Game over. His time is cut short for the sake of the elect. 
to use the New Testament term. Time is cut short for the sake of the elect. And the Lord Jesus will kill him with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming, this man. He'll wear out the saints, but his time of inflicting suffering will be cut short. What of this Son of Man, though? What of this Son of Man, this divine human-like figure, with the privilege of further revelation, we come to understand what the original audience really had no chance of understanding, that God himself would become a man. That God himself would become a man, a son of man, to accomplish all that the first man, tasked with taking dominion, failed to accomplish. The son of man, taken from Daniel chapter 7, becomes Jesus' favorite self-designation in the Gospels. He comes to put the world to rights by his perfect obedience while proclaiming in him the kingdom of God had come. And the appropriate response was repentance and faith. And if that's the case, then what does this seem? Verses 13 and 14. Coming on the clouds of heaven before the ancient of days. When does this happen historically? When is that supposed to happen? When has that happened? We can't be overly dogmatic here, but two texts and potentially more inform how we can think about this. The first is in Hebrew chapter, Hebrews chapter 1, where after describing the divinity of Christ, the author of Hebrews, whoever it was, said that, says that after making purification for sin, talking about Christ, after making purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high having become as much superior to them as the name he inherited is more excellent than theirs. Now, it just got done saying that he was he is the imprint, that he is the exact nature of God himself. It's not saying that he somehow wasn't and then became glorious. It's saying that something happened here. He inherited something. Something took place after making purification for sins, and he inherited something that was great and that was excellent. He continues on and he mentions, he says to the Son, your throne, O God. He's addressing the Son. He says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Sit at my right hand, he goes on to say, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The picture is that after making purification for sin, something happened. Something serious happened. Something seriously related to Christ ruling authoritatively in his kingdom. Eerily similar in theme to what we get when we turn to Matthew chapter 28. Where after his resurrection, Jesus looks at his disciples. And what does he say? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And to him, verse 14, was given dominion and a glory and a kingdom that all people's nations' languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away, which is why Christ can say, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. And so if I was called upon to do so, I would suggest that Jesus, the Son of Man, comes before the Ancient of Days to receive dominion and authority between the death and the resurrection, between his death and resurrection between the cross and Matthew 28, between coming kingdom and power promised to authority and dominion received. The Son of Man comes before the Ancient of Days. Do with that what you will. Very briefly, because we do not have much time, as I anticipated, during World War II, the Germans were quite confident the kind of unbreakability of their Enigma code. Some of you know this who are history buffs, probably know the story better than me. But a team of British mathematicians led by Alan Turing, you can actually go watch the movie The Imitation Game, depicts this. They broke the, the code, Enigma, with their own code, Ultra. Okay, And as a result, they knew exactly what the Germans were doing. But they had to hide it. They had to keep it a secret because if they were just all, they, would, they didn't want the Germans to catch on. So they would do things to make it look like they had figured out what the, Jewers, uh, the Germans were doing by some other means or some other way. Oh, we had a fortuitous accident and had a rescue boat that happened to see a submarine there. And they always were playing this game so the Germans didn't know that they had actually cracked 
the code. But just because they had Ultra, it didn't mean that they were in a war. It didn't mean that they were not in a war. It didn't mean there were no casualties. It didn't mean that they didn't have to exert effort. But it was obviously an incredible relief and advantage to know what was going to happen before it did. And that, in sum, is the high-level takeaway of this passage. A peek behind the veil as we live life before it. The nations will rage. The people of God will be persecuted. They'll be called to endure, even. But at the end of the day, that persecution and suffering will be relegated to a footnote in history in light of the glimpse behind the veil that we see in the promises of God brought to fruition by the Son of Man who has dominion. The king and kingdom who opposes God will be flicked off the pages of history right when they think they are really settling in for dynasty. The one who actually has dominion will be their judge. And the saints will possess the kingdom because Christ has conquered. And so my prayer is that this grand worldview shaping kind of vision be an inspiration to you this morning. And that the kingdom and the salvation brought by the Son of Man bring you hope even as we suffer for his sake. Let's pray. God, these are weighty, challenging things, and we pray that you would give us wisdom and discernment as we consider them, to know what to hold cautiously and firmly, but at the end of the day, we praise you for being a God who reigns and will reign, for being a God of victory and not just a God of trying, for a God who has written the end from the beginning and whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Lord, I pray that you would help us call this to mind. Help us call these two scenes, the ancient of days, the son of man, to mind when things look bleak, when, the, when our lives go dark, when things go dark in our nation, that we would know what is going on. After all, we've been told it's going to happen, and we know who wins. Give us hope 